0: Welcome, Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and moved closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Um, if we haven't met yet, I'm James Steinbach. My family and I have been here for about three, three and a half years. Um, And I'm honored to be sharing this sermon with you today, but if I'm being honest, also a good bit nervous. I'm stepping outside of my comfort zone and sharing a message that's a lot less information and data and explanation and a lot more testimony, reflection, and even confession. And I'm not doing this because I'm super awesome and my life is totally great and you should all just try to be like me or I'm worthy of attention or anything like that. Rather, my hope and prayer is that if I speak with transparency and vulnerability, that'll encourage you. You'll learn how even the people who preach are still growing and learning, works in progress, and that by doing this, we can all bring more vulnerability into our life together here at Advent. So let's begin by reviewing the story we're hearing as we work through Backyard Pilgrim. We're now starting our fourth week, and if you like literature and doing like plot arcs and diagramming like that, the first two weeks are kind of that flat introduction, the setting. Week one was God, the perfect parent, ready for these children on the way, and as a perfect, loving, almost doting parent, God is making the nursery just right, making a world that is perfect, that will meet all of our needs, that will satisfy and delight our hearts perfectly. And then week two showed us ourselves the way we were meant to be. In all of God's perfect, ideal, image-bearing design. Reflecting God's perfections together in community and in diversity. And then in week three, the plot thickens, and that's where that plot diagram starts to go up. Adam and Eve get themselves lost. There are all kinds of paths away from God and away from others. And for the last week, we've read about Adam and Eve managing to walk several of them in one chapter's space. When we last left them, they were feeling the shame of their sin Hiding behind bushes and leaves, wrestling with the pain of the broken version of humanity they had become. And this brings us to the climax of the story. This is the peak of that plot diagram. This is the moment of decision where it hinges. This week, Backyard Pilgrim poses to us a question, the same question posed to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Are we willing to be found by God? Willing to be found by God. That can feel vague and nebulous, so to help us not get all abstract and stay there for the day, I'd like to suggest a slightly hard thing to start off here. Think back, if you will, over the last week and remember a moment where you realized you had gotten yourself lost, a moment where you had sinned, something specific. And as we consider our willingness to be found by God, let's connect being found to a memory of a specific way we had gotten lost in the last week. Now, when I realize I've gotten lost, I have to confess I'm not immediately willing to be found by God. Now, if I could slow down and logically, you know, process the whole situation, I'm sure I could come up with a theologically precise, biblically supported, well-reasoned explanation for why I should be instantly willing to be found. But truth be told, uh, our experience tells us that's not how life works, and that's partly because it's not how our brains work. In his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, psychologist Daniel Kahneman explains that we humans have two modes of thought. He creatively calls them system one and system two. That part's not important. What is important is that system one thinking is fast. It's intuitive. It's emotional. It happens in a moment. It's our reactive survival mode of thinking. And system two is the slower, logical, reasonable, processing version of thought. Now, Christian author, a theologian, he calls himself, Jim Wilder, applies this framework to spiritual formation and Christian discipleship in his book, The Other Half of Church, and he laments the frustration we feel when we try to change our behavior on a dime simply by putting more information and more theology and more conclusions and more facts into our brains. It would be nice if that kind of sanctification by data or by logic worked, Um, But the problem with with such an attempt is that our rational, deliberate system two, the careful, slower thinking, can never beat our snappy, instinctive, emotional thinking in a race in our brain. By the time the, the slow deliberation kicks in, the reaction has probably already happened. Neurons that fire together wire together, scientists tell us. So our fast, intuitive reactions are typically the result of years and years spent in those habits telling ourselves those same narratives, the conclusions we've lived with for sometimes decades. And it's hard work, but we ought to identify where we've got well-worn neural pathways that get in the way of our Christian formation so that we can rewire those patterns. Neuroplasticity is a gift from God. Now, that was a bit of a dense kind of academic, maybe nerdy introduction. Let's simplify it a little bit with an illustration. Let's talk about stories and soundtracks for a moment. By default, we organize our lives into stories. As things happen, we recognize patterns, or sometimes we manufacture them, that are varying degrees of accuracy. And then we create these internal narratives that automatically play, automatically come to mind, automatically run in our brains and hearts when new events happen. And these soundtracks, these narratives shape how our lives happen. It's like the soundtrack under a cinematic moment shapes how you feel that event, that scene. That's what's happening in our hearts through these narratives we have trained ourselves to listen through the system one instant reaction conclusions we come to. To think about the power of a soundtrack for a moment, do you remember the moment in um, Jurassic Park where Dr. Grant and the Hammond kids come up and they see this field full of dinosaurs for the very, very first time and all of the, the CGI and you know glory of that day? Imagine if we swapped out the majestic, beautiful horns of that melody and replace them with something chaotic, like the Keystone Cops or the Benny Hill clarinet. Or perhaps take the tender strings and mournful penny whistle of My Heart Will Go On and replace Celine Dion with the deep rhythmic thrumming notes of Jaws and suddenly the end of Titanic slipping off of that door. That's a whole different punchline, isn't it? (laughs) Our internal soundtracks shape the way we feel and experience and perceive the events we go through. The events are the same but the soundtrack underneath shapes how we experience and how we view them. But we're rarely conscious of how strong that effect is. Now, when I realize I've gotten lost, and I have to decide if I'm willing to be found by God, there are some harmful soundtracks that play in my brain. And I'm actively still working to replace them, to rewire those neural pathways with God's true story instead. So for our time together today, I'd like to share with you three of the bad soundtracks that play in my brain. What I'm needing to be, it would need to answer the question, am I willing to be found by God? And with those, I want to share with you the biblical soundtracks and specific chapters and practices that I'm using to rewire my brain. This is not going to be a comprehensive overview of every bad soundtrack or wrong narrative that lives inside of us. Uh, We don't have time for that. We're a very, very wide, experienced group of people. I'm I'm hoping that with some of you, my false narratives, well, I don't hope they resonate strongly, but I hope that God's good replacement stories do, and if your inner narratives are different, I pray that you'll at least get a sense of, like, a method, a practice, a way of thinking and approaching this renewing of our minds. So I'm praying that you'll get a sense of method and that the Spirit will guide us to specific parts of Scripture and liturgy and community life that do address the specific soundtracks that are playing under the events of your life. So, without further ado, some bad soundtracks. Here's a soundtrack that hinders me from being willing to be found. After I sin, God and I could probably use some space. You may have experience with an authority figure who would walk away after you've done something wrong, putting distance between you, responding to that relational rift with separation instead of security whether that distance was meant to be harsh and punitive or perhaps actually a necessary way for that authority figure to calm down and process things well, um, we sometimes learn that or adopt that as a manner of of acting and interacting with God. And when I need to be found, the soundtrack of, well, slow down, let's give God some space, auto-starts in my head, and it misshapes my perspective, prompting what amounts to self-imposed isolation instead of secure connection with God. The story of the fall in Genesis 3 is one of the scripture passages I'm working with to rewire that neural pathway, to rewrite that soundtrack. Notice that in verses 8 through 9, God goes looking for Adam and Eve after having sinned. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? God already knows that Adam and Eve have sinned. In spite of that, God heads to the garden for their regularly scheduled evening walk. God is after the kind of fellowship they always had before sin. Noticing that Adam and Eve are missing, God is not content to shrug and keep walking. Ah, maybe I'll catch them tomorrow. I'm sure they're busy. No, God explicitly calls out, where are you? God is trying to find Adam and Eve. Distance is not what God wants. This story does not tell us about a God who needs space after we sin, does it? Does the God of Genesis 3 need to walk away and cool down, count to ten, take some deep breaths before we can talk about what just happened? Is this a God who just can't even with our repeated lostness? Hardly. The way God intentionally seeks out Adam and Eve in the middle of all their fresh sin and shame reveals that my default soundtrack is wrong. It's nothing but self-imposed isolation, and all it does is cut me off from the loving, healing, restoring presence of God. So when that old, broken story repeats itself under the events of my life, I need scriptures like this one to remind me the true story. God wants restoration so that we can have the same unhindered fellowship we had before I got myself lost. Sin or not, God deeply desires to spend time with me. Another false narrative that plays in my head, this is the doozy, when I've gotten lost is because of my sin, I'm I'm no longer worthy of God's love, or at least less worthy of it. And logically, I know that's, that's nonsense. I know full well there's no merit whatsoever in any idea that would undermine the foundational truth of God's love for me. I know this, in fact, but my reasoned conclusion on such matters, unfortunately, loses the race in my brain to the instinctively played bad soundtrack. It's ready to go, already queued up. I spent many years in a Christian subculture that strongly emphasized external compliance with strict moral standards and de-emphasized a lot of other truths we need in our Christian lives. I ended up treating good behavior as a proxy for my relationship with God. When I felt like I was doing what was right, I felt like God was happy with me. And when I wasn't, God wasn't. And for years and years, those neural pathways fired together and wired together. And this bad soundtrack reached the top of my spiritual Spotify wrapped. So now I'm standing here in front of you as a middle-aged Christian having spent his entire life in church and earned seminary degrees and confessing that I am still learning how to relate to God securely, still unlearning the fear that my behavior determines how much God loves me. A pivotal moment, kind of the incitement, the beginning of this soundtrack rewriting work was when I read Tim Keller's Prodigal God a little more than a decade ago. His explanation of Jesus' parable, we call the Prodigal Son, how it reveals God's extravagant love for us, opened my eyes and now I steadily return to this parable, repeating it in my heart, retelling it in my own words, putting myself into the narrative, rewiring my brain with the beautiful truth of this story. And I know this is a story many of you know well. Would you mind if I retold it in my own words here? There's a man who has two sons, but he's he's having trouble with the younger. In a moment of greed, rebellion, or just thoughtlessness, the younger son says, Dad, let's act like you're dead, and I get my inheritance now. Heartbroken. The father calculates his wealth, liquidates some assets, and eventually hands his son a purse full of coins. He climbs up the stairs to the roof of his house, rests his hands on the guardrail, leaning out and weeping as he watches his son run away from the family home, dust flying up the path behind him as he chooses to be lost. And for a time, the son lives the high high life, everything's great. He spends prodigally to indulge his every passion. He's rich and invincible until he isn't. His cash runs out just as a famine strikes his new city. The only jobs left are the most shameful and dirty sorts of labor he can imagine. Then the son starts to wonder about home. He starts to realize he might just be willing to be found. So he starts crafting a speech, an apology. And if I were him, all the way home, he practices it over and over again, fine-tuning the wording, polishing his tone of voice just right, perfecting this apology and making sure he can get through it without emotionally breaking down. I've sinned against God and before you, so I'm no longer worthy of your love, no longer worthy to be called your son, but could you at least hire me as a servant? Meanwhile, back at the ranch, evening is starting to fall, the day's work done, the breeze blowing in as the sun sets. We find the father standing again on his roof, watching the road as the light of the evening and his old eyes grow dim. Like every night since his son's departure, he blinks back tears as time marches inexorably on and the road appears empty. As the sun dips almost entirely below the nearby mountains, though, the father's breath catches in his throat. He looks out and he sees a speck at the horizon, someone on the road to town, forbidding himself to start hoping too much. Quite yet, the father grips the railing until his knuckles turn white, eyes squinting as he peers out into the distance Well, no neighbor would be coming up the road at this time, he thinks, but it couldn't be. Could it? Is it possible? And as a speck steadily grows and takes human shape, the father recognizes the way this traveler walks, more weary and worn than the last time he saw that gate. It's still unmistakable. This is his son. Scarcely able to breathe or even see through his tears, he stumbles down the stairs, nearly tripping over a goat in the open space by their kitchen. But once he gets out the front door, he lifts his robes to his waist, throws dignity to the wind, and sprints. He catches a bit of the grace and energy and athleticism he missed since he was a young man. His son sees him coming, and I imagine stops in his tracks. He has no idea how such an old man is moving like that, but it's definitely his father. As they get closer, the son stumbles the last few steps forward, collapses into his father's embrace takes a deep breath when the hugging and kissing allow him room to do so, and then finally starts the spiel he's been practicing for miles. I've sinned against God and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called, but this is too much for the father. He interrupts his son at this ridiculous conclusion. No longer worthy to be my son? Absurd. Turning to a servant, the poor woman near the point of collapse herself after trying to keep up with his wild sprint, the father's instructions bubble out with glee Make everything ready for a celebration. Get the robe, get the ring, get the richest food, get everything ready. My son was dead, but he's alive again. He had gotten himself so, so lost, but here he is, willing to be found. And when the soundtrack of my behavior controls God's amount of love for me, automatically plays in my head, I need stories like this instead, reminding me that the true story The real narrative under these events is this. God sprints toward me, rejoicing and celebrating when I'm willing to be found. And the third bad soundtrack and the final one I'd like to mention today is this. I feel like I need to repent correctly enough to get close to God. I need to feel bad enough about my sin or for long enough. Or I need to get myself back on the right path and stay there long enough to prove that I'm really serious and then I can be found by God. And so I end up wallowing in a sort of Protestant penance for a while, making myself feel bad enough before I can really repent. Um, Luke 15 reshapes this bad soundtrack as well. It replaces it with the truth that the father's response to his son in spite of a bad repentance a little bit. Yes, the son's on his way home. We're delighted to see that. But this idea that his father no longer considers him worthy because of what he's done, the father doesn't correct it with reasoning and logic. The father corrects it by loving him. By hugging and kissing and celebrating with a feast. So, no, God isn't putting a prove it, you better be really serious this time hurdle or obstacle or demand in front of our willingness to be found, in front of our repentance. God is the one in Genesis 3 calling out, Where are you? God is the one holding constant vigil and then sprinting down the path to embrace us. God already wants us to be found this leads me to a moment in our our Eucharist liturgy that week after week has become a really beloved part of liturgy and an important part of this rewiring effort for me. It it struck me as unusual when I first got to Advent, but over time it quickly uh, wormed its way into my heart in a deep way. And those are the words of absolution and the comfortable words that follow. I've been in churches plenty of times that have a strong emphasis on sin and on confession and repentance, even prayers of corporate confession. But many of them lack these necessary words, these authoritatively spoken words from God that forgiveness is ours because God decides to forgive. It is God's authoritative grace to us, forgiveness. The words, the comfortable words include these direct quotes from Scripture. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. God so loved the world that he gave his, gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life John 3:16 This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners 1 Timothy 1:15 And if anyone sins we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous He is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world In contrast in replacement to the false narrative of proving that my repentance is good enough The true soundtrack I've been learning to play is that forgiveness is God's grace. It is God's gift, not something I earn. Who am I to belittle that gift by making it something transactional? Well, thank you for bearing with me. If this sermon felt a little different, a little unusual to you, it certainly felt different to me as I delivered it. I want to offer one last parting detail in conclusion. And that is this observation. The work of replacing these soundtracks, of rewriting stories, of rewiring neural pathways, is long, slow work. It's patient work. It's work that happens doing the same things over and over again. And it's not work that we do alone. I want to emphasize that. This is not the work of a bunch of individuals. We're on a pilgrimage together. We're not at a bunch of hero journeys running parallel and separate from each other in isolation. So I want to call us to talk with one another to help each other discover and identify harmful soundtracks. The inner narratives that are getting in the way of our own closeness, our spiritual formation, our Christian growth. And then, keep talking. And work together finding stories from Scripture, from liturgy, from community practice that will help retrain our hearts and minds to rewire those pathways and to make sure that our instant system one reaction thoughts mirror the story God is telling us. Let's be a community of support for this long, patient work of relearning. And as we learn the habit of replacing our inner soundtracks, of updating our inner narratives, I think we'll become a people who are more consistently willing to be found by God. Father, we stand before you now humbled at the delight you show toward us, humbled at your eagerness to have us close, your joy in restoring us, And we're we're mindful that there are many, many stories and many scenarios that get in our way that we've learned, we've practiced for years, and that impede our closeness to you. So we pray that you would give us together grace to replace those with better soundtracks, to draw close to you for the long, challenging, but rewarding work of seeing our thoughts reshaped, our minds renewed to match your beautiful story and not the harmful ones we've learned ourselves. We thank you for your grace, for your call, for asking where are you. We're here. We thank you in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit AdventDenver.com.